Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to All Music Movies, a part of the All Music Podcast series and a companion podcast to All Music Books Deep Dive. Here, we explore music films and documentaries rather than books, and there are so many great ones, old and new. In fact, these days, there seems to be a new music film or documentary every week, so we're very excited to explore this area. I'm your host, Steve J. so grab your popcorn, sit back and relax, enjoy the show. Let's talk music documentaries and films. Today's guest is Michael Alago, the legendary A&R man who signed Metallica when he was just 24 years old. He would later work with White Zombie, John Lydon, Nina Simone, and Cindy Lauper, to name but a few. He recently wrote his memoir, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, and he is the subject of the 2017 documentary, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago, which has just recently been re-released. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thank you very much for having me today. Sonia Kalarat also joins us from time to time, and she's here as well, and she actually worked with Michael. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Hello, darling. So Michael Lago is one of my very favorite people in the world. We worked together when he was doing A&R at Palm Pictures, and he was someone I was honored to know and someone I am still very honored to know. Michael, I don't know if you remember, you brought me to a Nina Simone show. I think it was at Town Hall or Carnegie Hall, and the seats were so good that Bette Midler was behind us. (laughs) (laughs) And it's because of Michael that Jason Newstead once told me that I rock. So <laughs> claim to fame. So I'm super psyched to talk to you, Michael, about the doc and your life. It's very awesome. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. So Michael, you grew up in Brooklyn and by your mid-teens, you were taking the train into New York City every night of the week during the days of Max's and Johnny Thunders, Cherry Vanilla and CBGB. Can you talk about what a night out during this time period might look like? Sure. I was a young, maybe 15, 16 year old. I still don't know why my mom let me go out all those nights. I was a person who went out alone most of the time. I would get on the B train from Borough Park in Brooklyn. And if I was going to CBGB, I would get off at Broadway Lafayette. That's in the East Village already. And I would walk down Bleecker and right to the Bowery. If if those were early shows, I would see whoever was there, and then I would walk up Bowery till I hit Park Avenue South to go to Max's Kansas City. That happened a lot. Um, I don't know if I was out every single night, but really I was out almost every single night. I remember buying the Village Voice, and it was a weekly then, and it might have been, I don't know, 50 cents or something, and I would go to the back where there was music, movies, porn, and uh, music, movies, and porn. And uh, so I really, uh, I just uh, mostly looked at the uh, music pages and there was always a, a very long ad for CBGB. And everyone sounds so interesting there. 
At one point, Hilly Crystal, the owner, did this like British invasion. So he brought in X-ray specs and Eddie and the Hot Rods. And there were three nights of the Dead Boys and the Damned. And all of that was very, very exciting to a 16-year-old uh, who loved music. So that's what I did most of the time. And uh, I was um, out very late and I would take the train home very late. And you got to remember in the 80s, oof, the Bowery was not really safe. And for a little petite thing, getting on the train at three, four o'clock in the morning by myself, I guess was not safe or people told me it was not safe. You know, thank God I was never bothered on the subway or, you know, walking to any of the venues that I just spoke of. I don't know, I always had like angels watching over me or something, or my mom, you know? That was what a night out was like, for the most part. I love it. I mean, despite the, the dangers that may have lurked in the background, I think that era sounds like a magical time. And I think that the movie also gets that across, that it, it's not only a movie about you, but it also really captures this interesting era in New York City. You know, you mentioned the Mud Club, you mentioned CBs. Do you miss those glory days? Oh, well, I, 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 when I reminisce, I'm just grateful that I was there, you know? I remember also in that period of time in the mid-80s, there was a flyer all around New York and it said, Fear City. Um, do I miss it? Well, a lot of those artists I had become friends with, so I do miss them. I miss Steve Baders, who passed away in 1994. I just miss the whole excitement of all us young people being allowed into CBGB underage. And, you know, the music we heard there was so very exciting. So, you know, if I miss stuff like that, I go to YouTube and I click in, you know, the Dead Boys 1977 or the Plasmatics at Bonds or, you know, all that good stuff. I'm just glad that I got to hear all of that stuff for a number of years. By the time I was uh, 19, I was going to the School of Visual Arts and I worked part-time in a pharmacy on Astor Place. And uh, even though you haven't asked me this yet, I'm gonna tell you anyway, I was taking lunch one day and I was walking down um, East 11th Street. I saw a building, a beautiful building. And on the uh, door, there was just a white piece of paper, like an eight by 10 piece of paper. And it said, um, video club opening, uh, resumes wanted. Now it's 1980. It is the advent of MTV. I walk in this building. I'm amazed because it's an art deco building. I mean, so beautiful, really so beautiful. And there was a man in the balcony. I, I always say this, I liken him to the Wizard of Oz. And he was like, kid, what do you want? We're not open yet. And I was like, I want a job, video club, like what's that? And he just, I don't know, he just looked at me and he said, come upstairs. So I went up to his office, his name was Jerry Brandt, may he rest in peace. And we started talking about music. Little did I know that Jerry discovered Carly Simon, Joe Bryath, the voices of East Harlem. Even when he worked in the mailroom at the William Morris Agency with David Geffen, of all people, he helped bring uh, the Rolling Stones to the United States. Now, if I would have known all that while I was talking to him, I would have flipped out. So all I knew was that he was the music director for this new club opening up called The Ritz. So we started talking about music. We talked about all kinds of music, from the Great American Songbook to what was going on in the New York underground. And I don't know, after a period of time, he said, kid, I'm going to give you a job. You're going to open my mail. You're going to get my lunch and you're going to answer my phone. And I just thought, oh, my God, I'm in the music business. And really, I was in the music business very early days. So um, I quit going to the School of Visual Arts and um, I had still stayed on for just a couple of months at this uh, pharmacy that I worked on in um, on Astro Place, I don't know for one reason or another. And at one point I was full-time at the Ritz. I, I shared Jerry's office during the daytime and I listened to everything Jerry had to say. Uh, he was talking to uh, mostly managers and uh, all the booking agents. And I just listened to everything. I was a sponge and I was hearing him talk about how 
he booked, um, I don't know, 1,500, 1,600 seat room. And about a year later, I started booking all the local acts on uh, the off nights. And I did a film night. Jerry allowed me to be adventurous when I was there. And then at some point, I was the assistant music director there, and I started booking the major acts there. And it was such a trip because, remember, it's 1980. Uh, we're now hearing and seeing that Tina Turner is coming back. She got signed to Capitol, and we sold out five nights of Tina Turner. I remember booking two nights of Prince when like his early record, like Dirty Mind had just come out. Those, those were, I'm sorry, those were the, the level of the artists that we were signing up to play there. We have a similar musical timeline. And as a Cream Magazine aficionado, I'd see these magical places in New York. I was in Boston at the time, hitting the rat, seeing Johnny Thunders at Jonathan Swift's. And it was just an incredible time for music. Fantastic. And you know, What's, that, what's the club that's not open anymore in Boston that I think one of the last shows ever there was Fugazi? The Channel? Oh, The Channel, of course. Oh, my God, did I love The Channel. When I went to Boston, I just, that was, I beelined there. I'd brush my teeth, leave the hotel, and get to The Channel, you know? Yeah, I was at that end of Boston just the other night, and boy, has it changed. Wow. Any major city, what was once there is not there anymore. One of the very sad things is um, a couple years ago, uh, Roseland on West 52nd Street was, was torn down. Whew. So what are they doing? Putting another glass tower apartment building there. Like we need another apartment building like a hole in the head. But you know, Roseland was there over 50 odd years. And it was, uh, you know, people's moms and dad used to go there. And you know, we sometimes have no respect for architecture, or, you know, the culture of New York City. And yes, in every major city, whether it's Boston, Austin, Dallas, San Francisco, New York, every place has changed dramatically. And sometimes not for the better. I agree. Michael, I want to go back a little bit to the Dead Boys, who's, of course, have already been mentioned several times, because you had the fanzine. It was the Dead Boys official fan club magazine right so i want to know how you heard about them and then i want to know how you started this fanzine and and what you know how did it work with the band let, let us know that story i love it sure um uh, jody and i found out about the dead boys because hilly crystal the owner of cbgb was going to be managing them and i must have picked that up from hilly talking about them and i love the name dead boys so jody and i i think went to one of their first gigs at Seabees. Um, they were banned from Youngstown, Ohio. I like to think of them as the bastard children of the Stooges. They were very exciting. Stiv Bader was a character. I remember a night when he had on a vinyl shirt and pinned to the vinyl shirt with some bologna. And at one point in his, in his excitement, he would rip the bologna off, blow his nose in it and swallow the bologna. We screamed, we hollered, we carried on, we took pictures, we were always in the front row. We loved Stib so much. You know, we didn't really know anything about starting a fan club, so all we ever wound up doing was, you know, doing, a, as they did back in the day, a cut and paste zine called All This and More, which was one of their songs on their first album, Young, Loud, and Snotty. And I don't know, it was maybe like 10 pages, 12 pages of Xerox of all live performances, cut and paste. And, you know, people wrote to us and we sent the zine out and the band just loved us because we were, you know, 15, 16 years old, young and enthusiastic. And we really, you know, we were always front and center for their shows. We had no fear. Other people, when they saw Stib carrying on and banging the mic stand against his body, they started like, you know, remember we moved back? We would want to move even closer to them. I had a little crush on the drummer, of course, Johnny Blitz. He was an adorable blonde who uh, played a mean drum. 
<laughs> he would bang on that drum. Anyway, so uh, that's how we knew about the Dead Boys. And you know, after we heard about them from Hilly, we just went to all of their shows. And there was a historic weekend when the Dead Boys and the Damned, who had just come over from the UK and they had their first album out, played. And it was wild. It was packed. It was all sold out. They're extraordinary, really. They're extraordinary. And believe it or not, any minute in 2022, a version of the Dead Boys is coming around to play again. Some people hate the idea. I think if you're a musician like Cheetah Chrome and you help start the Dead Boys, you're allowed to use the name. You know, uh, I've seen them with Jake Hout, their singer. He's fabulous. He's not stiff, but he's not supposed to be. He is his own entity. And I, I saw them at Bowery Electric before the pandemic. So 2019, and they were wild and crazy. And they um, are super musicians, all the other guys who are in the band. Um, on this tour, uh, Johnny Blitz is not going to be joining them. But you know what? It's like uh, you're a working musician. You can't just stay home. Now, of course, they're not looking to duplicate. Oh, let's duplicate Stiv. But you know what? Go on the road, play your songs, and hopefully people will still love them. And that's what it's all about, the songs anyway. And they had great songs. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Michael Alago, who is the subject of the rock documentary, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. It is fascinating to hear you tell your story. You talk about going to legendary clubs as a kid. You start a zine for the Dead Boys. You get a job at the now legendary Ritz nightclub, in part because of your wide taste in music. It's amazing. Oh, well, thank you. I love, you know, I love music my whole entire life. I always say, or I think I said in the beginning of my book, I came out of the womb loving music. And that's the truth. You know, I was a little kid in Brooklyn and I listened to a 77 WABC AM radio. Now, back in the day, AM radio was not heavily formatted like it is now. So you would hear Aretha Franklin. Two minutes later, you'd hear Grand Funk Railroad you know, Archie Bell and the Drills, Hello, It's Me by Todd Rundgren. So my ears got attuned to listening to a wide variety of music. I was just thrilled that stylistically I could hear all these types of music on AM radio. I was going to say, like, you know, I was wondering where you got your musical taste because, you know, one thing in the film that Jerry, you said that Jerry Brandt loved about you was your varied musical taste and I think I always think that that's something really special about you which we'll get into is you know your the signings that you did during your tenure as an A&R person but like when you mentioned the AM radio I was curious to know whether your parents also exposed you to music when you were growing up. My dad's sister my aunt Jenny loved music she was a great beauty 
we got along like, like a house on fire. And I remember going through her records and seeing Isaac Hayes, Shaft, Nina Simone at Town Hall, uh, Johnny Mathis. And I just thought, I gotta hear this music. So that was another avenue of a style of music that I got to listen to. And then remember back then, there was Dick Clark American Bandstand. And uh, there was Don Cornelius's Soul Train. There was um, Don Kirshner's Midnight Special. And then on Friday nights, if you stayed up late enough, I think it might have been 1130 at night, there was in concert. So because of my love for music at an early age, I, I was curious. I was always curious. I listened and watched everything. Speaking of the Ritz and legendary shows, you have to tell us about a show you booked in 1981, Public Image Limited, which ended in a riot. That May in 1981, on a Friday and Saturday night, uh, we had Bow Wow Wow coming to perform. And uh, the beginning of the week, I uh, got a phone call from Malcolm McLaren in the UK. He said, oh, Michael, we won't be coming. I said, what do you mean you won't be coming? He said, well, you know, Annabelle is underage. And I said, stop right there. Two months ago, when we booked this gig, Annabella was still underage. So like, what's happening here? He said, well, you know, her mom doesn't want her to come. I said, well, buy her mom a ticket as well. He said, well, I, you know, I, it's just, you know, like we're not feeling it or something. I said, wait a minute. We've been publicizing this. The show, we sold over 3,000 tickets. You're coming to New York. He said, well, I'll have a talk with the band again, but we don't think we're coming. I said, well, then send me back the 50% deposit that I sent you. I hang up. I got to go into Jerry Brandt's office. And um, I let Jerry know that the band and Malcolm were not coming. He was furious. He said, get them on the phone for me. And I knew there was going to be a major problem now. So I got Malcolm on the phone with Jerry. Uh, I guess Malcolm was yelling because Jerry was yelling louder. And they said they were not coming. I don't think we even got the 50% deposit back. That's the kind of shyster he was. A brilliant shyster. So now Jerry looks at me and said, so what are, we, what are you going to do? I said, what, you, what am I going to do? We have to figure this out. He said, well, this was a booking you wanted to have happen. And I thought, okay, fine. So I don't know how I knew that Public Image Limited was in New York City. They were on a press junket for Warner Brothers for the release of their Flowers of Romance album. So I call Liz Rosenberg who was the head of publicity. And um, I told Liz, uh, we have this problem. And I had never spoken to John Lydon before. Uh, so this was gonna be a real doozy. And I let them know, they had me on speakerphone and I let them know what my situation was, what the problem was. And they said, well, we're here just to do press. We don't have instruments or anything. I said, well, you know what? Can I send for a car for you to come down to my office and let's talk about this? We talked about it. We rented a Prophet 5 keyboard for Keith so he could program 45 minutes or so worth of music into the keyboard. Um, I don't know. We rented instruments and um, they agreed to do the show uh, for two nights. Um, so fast forward to Friday night. That show is, you know, sold out too. So uh, at some point the, the show is going to begin. The Ritz was known for having this like 30 foot screen in front of the stage. And it was really something back then in 1980, 81, because all the record companies and MTV were sending us every popular video of the day to show on that screen. Little did I know that Public Image wanted to kind of do this performance art thing. So there were these beautiful lights behind the screen and under the screen. You only got to see public image moving around in shadow behind the screen. A little performance art for the kids who wanted rock and roll and wanted to really see like Johnny Rotten, you know? So they were not coming out from the screen, behind the screen. John started to taunt and teach the audience and he peeked his head out and he said they were, they were not coming out from behind the screen. Well, I don't know, we're maybe about 18 minutes into the show and we see chairs, beer bottles, and whatnot 
get thrown from the balcony on the stage. All we cared about was that the 30-foot screen would not get damaged. Well, kids started pulling down the screen. Public image left the stage. Um, it's 1981, and security really still doesn't know how to deal with young kids who want to run on stage, pogo, or whatever the heck they were doing in 81. And um, the, the show was over. I wanted to bring them back the next night. Jerry yelled and screamed at me. He told me I was nuts to get out of his office. And um, uh, the next night we had like a video night or something. It was a drag, if you ask me. Um, so that night I go into the dressing room and, and they're hilarious. They thought it was the funniest thing ever, PIL. And I brought a couple of bottles of champagne and we're laughing and we're talking and there's all this some um, illicit material around. And um, there was a kid outside who got his head busted open and it was just bleeding. And I was going back and forth in and out of the dressing room for just a variety of things. And uh, he said to me, um, I want to really meet John. And I, I mean, I took pity upon him because he was uh, like, his head was busted open. I said, hold that, hold on just one minute. So I go inside. I said, John, there's a kid out, young kid outside. He's dying to meet you. And his head is busted open. John said, bring him in. So I brought him in. We bandaged up his head. Anyway, I think the kid died and went to heaven because he met Johnny Rotten. That was the short version of the story. And um, that was, uh, what is it, 81? Eight, nine, nine, nine. Was that, oh my God. Yes, 40 years ago? 40 years ago. <laughs> 41 years ago. But, you know, it's one, of, it's one of the favorite things that people love asking me whenever I do an interview. And of course, the Ritz is now Webster Hall. That's correct. And they still have shows there. Do you think about that night every time you go there? No. <laughs> I suppose there are many, many nights to think about when you're there. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I only really think about this is when I get interviewed and everybody wants to know about that infamous night. It is a better story now, knowing that they were a last-minute replacement for Bow Wow Wow. Shit happens, and now that's a legendary show. It was a shot heard around the world. I think that evening and the following morning, it was on all the, you know, the news channels. And I think that Thursday, when all the British publications got sent to New York, it was on the cover either of Melody Maker or Sounds. So really, it was like a thing. Remember, public image back then were super popular. Well, let's move on to one of the other things that everybody always asks you about. This is probably the number one thing, which is, you know, at 21 years old, you got hired as an A&R person at Electra. Correct. And then you went to see Metallica at L'Amour, and they were one of your first signings. What was it about them? And tell us that story. <laughs> I start working at Electra in um, 1983. Uh, I met with the chairman, Bob Krasnow, and I had that same conversation with Bob that I had with Jerry Brandt about music, about all kinds of music. After about an hour, Krasnow said, you know, it was really nice talking to you. You'll hear from me soon. So about a week or two later, Bob called me and he said, I'm hiring you and you're going to be in our A&R department. I, I, he says, call Marianne and Human Resources and she'll work everything out. And I said, okay, thanks. I think when I hung up the phone, I might've cried. And then I called a friend and I said, what does A&R mean? <laughs> they laughed in my face. They said, Alago, it's artists and repertoire. Oh. Then I realized after a bit of time that the A&R department is the most important department at a record company. If you're not signing artists that sell records, you're not gonna have a job. So what an INR department does is they're building a roster for the label. Right before I started at Electra, I knew that uh, Metallica was coming to play L'Amour, I think with Armored Saint and Wasp. So I take my friend, Phil Caivano, who we all now know from Monster Magnet, and we went to see them and we flipped out. You know, they were very friendly and uh, we just, small talk, everybody was drinking beer. 
But really, we should fast forward a hair. Johnny Z from Megaforce Records. I have a band that's going to be the biggest band. They're called Raven. I want them on Electra. Will you sign them? I said, no, but I'll give you money to do a demo for me. Now, the problem was that he'd given me a couple of records, and one of them was Kill Em All by Metallica. And I heard that, and I kind of lost my mind. So the year before, I had given Lars my business card at the Stone in San Francisco. So a year later, he called, and he said, this is Lars from Metallica. And are you still interested in my band? I said, absolutely. He said, August 3rd, we're playing Roseland with both Raven and Anthrax. Will you come? I said, absolutely. So August 3rd comes around. It happens to be James Hetfield's birthday as well. And I go see them at Roseland, historic music venue. And they were explosive. They were young people who everyone loved to call alcoholics uh, at the time. They were young people who happened to be very, very focused and knew what they wanted to do with their life. They knew the kind of music that they were going to record. They were very dynamic on stage. I always like to say James Hetfield was a ringleader on stage. Very charming, very charismatic. And I always tell people I signed them because James had good teeth. <laughs> you know, of course, everybody's like, oh, Lago, where did they get you from? So I go see them. They were marvelous. They blew the roof off the proverbial roof off the uh, Roseland. And um, when it was over, I made my way backstage. I closed the door and I was so drunk that I was hugging them and kissing them. And James is like, toweling off his head. They all have towels on. And James looks at Lars and said, who the fuck is that guy? <laughs> and Lars says, James, that's Michael Alago from Electra Records. And I guess they were thinking, we're putting our lives in this guy's hands. The answer was yes. So we, we drank that night. We had a wild time. Believe it or not, early in the day, the next afternoon, they showed up at Electra. We had a meeting in the conference room. Uh, I got them Chinese food and beer. And it's 1984. So I gave them a, a ton of cassettes and vinyl. You know, they wanted the MC5, the Doors, the Stooges, and stuff like that. Um, so I called Krasnow into the office, into the conference room, our chairman. And, you know, he came in, you know, with the $5,000 suit, you know, the pinky ring, the cigar. He was like, you know, you guys were great last night. If Michael wants you here, we want you here. You know, the problem was getting them off of Megaforce Records. You know, Johnny Z was not happy with me, but he knew a major label associated with Time Warner could do for them what a small independent label that still didn't have distribution could not do for them. So they wind up signing to Electra, and that signing is legendary, and it's historic. And it changed the face of rock and roll and heavy metal. Uh, it granted license for other A&R people to want to find their own Metallica. But that doesn't really happen. There are other bands that are really, really fabulous. But there really was and still only one Metallica. Nobody sounds like them. Nobody sounds like James. You know, these are people who always did it their way. And their way was the right way. Whether you liked all their records or not is another story. Whether you thought they sold out when they did the Black Album and had a hit single with Enter Sandman, we don't care. When you think about them right this minute in 2022, they just got off a stadium show. I signed them 38 years ago to maintain that kind of notoriety, legendary status to be able to still sell out those venues is a testament to their brilliance. And yes, that is also the question that a lot of people ask me, other than <laughs> how is it that you worked with Nina Simone? But you didn't ask me that yet. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Michael Alago, who is the subject of the rock documentary, Who the Fuck Is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. I do have to say, you sound like a perfect A&R guy from a band or a musician's perspective. You hear a lot of tales of A&R people who pressure bands to do it in the way that they think is right. 
I allowed them to have their own way. <laughs> they were smart enough to know what they wanted to do already. And I just had such confidence in them that uh, all I had to do really was monitor the recordings and talk about the songs. You know, I always tell people, I always tell artists the truth, whether they wanted to hear it or not. And they respected that. Lars Ulrich called you an outsider in a mainstream environment. And others in the film backed that up. Hearing your stories today, I couldn't agree more. Do you agree with that characterization? And how did that perspective come about? Keep in mind, I've been listening to music on the radio since I'm about 14 years old. I'm now 23 or 24. I'm working at a major label. My do's and don'ts have shifted in my head. I knew that I had to sign only what I considered great, not good. Uh, you know, I listened to tons of cassettes and unsigned music for a very long time. And I heard lots of good things, but you can't sign good. You, you just can't sign good. You have to sign great. Well, you know, I was young. I, was, I, I am Puerto Rican. I'm gay. And, you know, everybody was like, wait, this gay guy's going to sign Metallica? You're damn right. You're damn right. And, you know, people knew me from the club scene. Uh, you know, I never had problems being gay. I was never in the closet. Nobody ever made a thing about it. But I guess the band considered me an outsider because of that. And themselves outsiders because of the kind of music they were playing. They weren't playing radio-friendly music. It was hard and heavy and in your face. And we didn't even know if we were going to get them on the radio. So when, once they signed, what we did was we gave them a lot of money to go on the road, gave them a lot of tour support money, and they stayed on the, on the road for the next year or so. And that's how they wound up selling records, because they were on the road, and they were brilliant live. So... We talked about the magical time of New York City. That time also came with a lot of sadness and loss. You know, the AIDS epidemic was raging and you are someone with, that is living with AIDS. And so your survival paired with your sobriety is just, it's really impressive. And I wanted to shift gears for a second and ask you about your daily routines. Sure, but we'll backtrack just a hair. You know, I found out that I was HIV positive in the eighties and you know, all of us gay men and some women were fearful. All we had was fear. You know, we didn't know what is this thing at first called GRID, and then it finally got acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. A lot of us had it. I had a doctor, Barbara Starrett. She was a gem. She worked in the labs. She was brilliant. For a very long time, I just had no symptoms. So I was going to work every day. Uh, I don't know if I told people then uh, immediately um, that I was positive. But then at one point, probably about five or six years later, from the mid 80s to almost 90, I got full blown AIDS. I was very, very ill. I had what they call wasting syndrome. I was losing weight by the day. And um, Barbara wanted me to go to the uh, AIDS ward at St. Vincent's uh, Hospital. I said I wasn't going. And uh, she didn't like that idea. And I wasn't going because I felt like, you know, I would drop dead if I wound up in that space. And Barbara was so dedicated to me when she had hundreds of men that she was seeing every day. She would bicycle to my house at five o'clock in the morning to ask me how I was doing. There was no medicine then. It was a crazy time. They were getting these pills, some pills from Mexico. We took them. We didn't know what they were. We took them. And then at some point, Barbara said, you know, if, well, if you're not going, we should give you a vitamin drip every day. We should give you IV pentamidine so that you wouldn't contract pneumonia. And uh, I was lying on that sofa wasting away for about a year. Finally, a, a medicine comes about called AZT. Barbara comes to my home one morning, my home one morning, and she says, you know, Michael, as your primary care physician, I have to tell you this, um, there's a medication called AZT. I don't want you to take it. I said, Barbara, you're keeping me alive. I'm not taking it. All of the young guys that I knew from the music business passed away from AZT. The big pharma company didn't know how much to give you. Was it this much or that much? It basically kills a lot of people. Months later, a good year or so later, I'm still on the sofa. And Barbara says, there's a medicine, I believe it was called sequinavir. I want you to take it. So I take it. And about six months later, I'm back at my job at Electra. I am so skinny. 
Remember, it's the 90s and people, again, had fear of this pandemic. Can I hug Michael? Can I kiss Michael? Can I shake his hand? And these were all things that I had to let people know it was okay to shake my hand. It was okay to, you know, give me a hug. You know, after that, you know, I, I, until I find a cure for, for AIDS, I will always be HIV positive. But the brilliant thing about it is that I take one pill every day. It's down to one pill every day. My viral load is at zero. It's non-detectable in my body. If that's not a darn miracle, I don't know what it is. I'm going on 30 years when I know about this. My mind is a little screwy from all the medications, but uh, I work with what I got. I never got sick like that ever again. That's amazing. You look great. And I remember you, you telling me that Patty Smith would bring you soup every day. And No, no, no. Patty, Patty called me every day. Oh, she called you. Yeah. Yes. From St. Clair Shores, Michigan. She was married to Fred Sonic Smith from the NC5, and they were raising two children. She had retired, and I was in love with Maddie Smith. So hearing from her on the telephone just brightened my day. We talked about um, Robert Maplethorpe. She had just lost her dad and her brother. So we would talk about music. We would talk about AIDS. We would talk about lots of things. At one point, she said, you know, I'm going to go in the studio. I was in heaven hearing that news. She said, I'm just going to record two songs. I'm going to record when the hunter gets captured by the game, by the Marvelettes. And I'm going to record my favorite version of Don't Smoke in Bed by Nina Simone. Oh, my God. I was in heaven hearing that news. She sent me the cassette, which I still have, of course. During that whole period of time, she called me, really, she called me every day. It lifted my spirits so much to hear from her. Everybody brought me cookies and soup and stuff that I could uh, handle. It was very, very scary. You know, there were young men calling me at three o'clock in the morning, and I knew that they um, were in a psychosis. One guy called me, a friend of mine, said, Michael, I'm going blind from Mac. I can't see anymore. So those are the kind of stories you get. So intense. Oh my God. It, it was awful. <laughs> and you know what? Here we are. I survived. Here we are. And one of my favorite documentaries is How to Survive a Plague, which has all a lot of these doctors you speak of in it. And it, you know, it gives a little hope. So I we're glad you're still here. Yeah. So thank you. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're speaking with Michael Alago, who is the subject of the rock documentary, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Journey of Michael Alago. I agree with everything Sonia just said, and the film is really your journey, and I encourage our listeners to go watch the film. Yes, we had such good luck for three years on Netflix. It did so well that uh, when our contract was up last September, one of the distributors, uh, Rugged Entertainment, Peter Spirer, said, I'm going to pick up your movie again. And he got us on right now, as of March 2022, we're on Amazon Prime, we're on Xbox, we're on Google Play, and we're on YouTube. So all of those platforms, you could find the film yet again. And I still hear from people all over the world who are just now seeing it, and they love it. It is beautifully impressive. And you brought up Nina Simone again, whom I adore. So now I do have to ask, you produced her last full-length record, A Single Woman, and then became fast friends. What was she like and what was working with her like? 
Sure. I wanted to sign her initially when I first got to Electra, but I didn't have any juice. Then. <laughs> it took signing Metallica to get me the juice. Bob didn't want to. He thought she was a has-been. Uh, I thought somebody that brilliant can never be a has-been in my mind. So um, he didn't allow me to sign her. Then I went all around the world to see her perform live. I am um, a Nina Simone fanatic. Uh, Nina Simone happens to be my favorite artist of all time. If I could only hear one voice ever again, it would be her voice. So we became fast friends. She loved that I was so young and uh, that I had such love and respect for her music. You know, for me, I've never heard a voice like that in my life. You know it's her immediately when a song starts. Nina Simone was an artist who could sing any kind of music. She covered Bob Dylan. She covered George Harrison. She translated Jacques Brel from uh, French to English. I remember watching an interview um, of Bob Dylan on Music Cares. He was getting an award. And he said one of the things that thrilled him the most back in the day was he would run into Nina Simone in the West Village all the time. And it freaked him out. And he was, he, Bob Dylan, was grateful that Nina would even record his music. I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you know, she recorded Tom Thumb's Blues and Just Like a Woman, George Harrison, Isn't It a Pity, and My Sweet Lord, and, um, and Jacques Brel, Ne Me Quitte Pas, uh, which is, I think, uh, If You Should Ever Go Away. I was relentless. I said, Bob, I have to sign Nina Simone, and you really just have to let me do it. And he just wanted basically to shut me up. So I wound up signing her. We went through a ton of producers. She wanted a young black producer. So I called up Andre Fisher. Andre was married to Natalie Cole at the time. He was the drummer in Chaka Khan's Rufus. So I have him come to the office in LA. They get along like a house on, like a house on fire. And Andre Fisher produced the album. Uh, I was the executive producer. I helped pick the songs with Nina. I knew she wanted to make a record about love and loneliness and loss. And that's what we made the record about. We modeled that record after two recordings that we both loved. Billie Holiday's Lady in Satin and Frank Sinatra's A Man Alone. Now, Frank Sinatra's A Man Alone was a very odd record for him because I was a lot of poetry on that record. Do you associate Frank Sinatra with poetry? No, you don't. Anyway, and it was Words and Music by Rod McEwen, best-selling gay poet of the 70s. It's a beautiful record. And the Billie Holiday record was her next to last recording before she passed away in 19, July of 1959. And uh, we made this record with a 50-piece orchestra. It's gorgeous. She was a pain in the ass recording the record. You know, she never wanted to do do-overs. So we did a lot of splicing and dicing on the tape. And um, it came out really, really beautiful. And like I said, it's a record about love and loneliness and loss. You know, you could slit your wrists after listening to this record. What was Nina Simone like? Uh, well, I adored her. She adored me. She was temperamental. She was moody. Before, you know, they diagnosed her as being, you know, bipolar, she was also sick during those times that I was with her. She had breast cancer, unfortunately, and she was taking all kinds of medicine with alcohol, not recommended. So that went from happy Nina to where the fuck is my money, Nina, to hanging up the phone on me, Nina, to calling me back, apologizing and saying, you know, sugar lips, how much I love you. Why are you gay? Why can't we get married? I said, Nina, we're not getting married, but I totally love you. I love you. So fast forward, Nick Cave from the birthday party is promoting a series of concerts called The Meltdown in London. So Nick is playing, Elvis Costello is playing, Suicide, one of my all-time favorite bands, Alan Vega and Marty Rev are playing, and Nina's playing. So that I get to our hotel in London real early that day with two dozen white roses and a bottle of champagne. She's getting her hair cornrowed, her clothes pressed. She throws all the women out of the room because she just wanted to hang out with me. At some point she says, darling, do you want to take a bubble bath? I said, sure. 
So I look in the bathroom to see if there were bubbles. There were no bubbles. So I called out to concierge and I said, could you please call the chemist and get us some bubbles? So I, he got me some bubbles. Um, and the next thing I know, she's in the bathtub completely nude. And I think to myself, oh my God, what am I going to do? So I became like a chicken. <laughs> I was like, I took off everything but my boxer shorts and I just quickly got in the bathtub. We laughed as if we were like 14 year olds, carrying on, uh, drinking the champagne and having a grand old time. That was the last time I saw her in person. That was in the summer of 99. Fast forward, and uh, I never get tired of talking about Nina Simone, as you can see and hear. It's April of 2003. Uh, it's about, I guess, about the 15th of April. But something said, call Nina. And it was very heavy in my brain. So I came back home. I took off my, my winter coat. And I called the south of France where she was living. Um, the housekeeper answered the phone. And they said, oh, you know, Simone is not feeling so well. I said, I, you know, I know, I know all about it. So um, do you think you could put her on the phone just for a moment? And she was very, very weak. She had a stroke and uh, she just was not doing well. And uh, so she gets on the phone in a very light voice. And I said, hello, darling, I love you. She said, well, I love you too. And we only spoke for a moment. I know the phone fell and Juanita, the housekeeper said, she's really not up to talking. I said, well, you know what? At least we got to say hello to each other. A few days later, April 20th, I had left the computer on. And at the top of the computer, it said, Nina Simone, dead at 70. Blew my mind. That's how I found out she passed away. I thought to myself, what matters is the relationship that I had with her for all those years. And that I got to make her final full-length recording. I want to talk a little bit about your photography because I know that you are making art and you use photography in your art. And the scrapbooks in the documentary, by the way, are so amazing when you start pulling out those scrapbooks that it looks to me like you started at a very young age and now your photography that kind of, you know, you're collaging now. So can you talk a little bit about the scrapbooks and how they feed into the art you're making now? Yeah, there are two different things we're talking about. There are scrapbooks of all the articles and ticket stubs and all that. And then there are the journals that I don't know how I need to keep it as a 15 year old, just documenting, got on the B train, went to Max's Kansas City to see Cherry Vanilla, saw Blondie at CBGB. I saw another night of Patti Smith at CBGB. I'm gonna go to a very late show at Max's Kansas City. I don't know what my mother's gonna say. So it wasn't poetry or anything like that. It was just a listing for years and wrote in those journals up until right now. I mostly only have uh, scrapbooks from 77 and 78. I didn't really keep scrapbooks, but they are chock full of stuff of punk rock from back then. I was taking pictures back in the day with a Polaroid camera that I was carrying around. I was taking rock and roll photographs. I was taking photographs of men I picked up on the street. I had tens of thousands of Polaroids, which I don't know what that says about me, but I have tens of thousands of Polaroids from back in the day. I knew I didn't want to be a rock and roll photographer. I just didn't want to do that. But, you know, I, my love of men and uh, prisoners and uh, heavily tattooed men uh, were the thing I gravitated towards. I got a deal with Bruno Gamunder in Berlin, and I made three books of male erotica, and they sold well. And Recently, I saw one of my books on eBay for $750. And then the next one down was $25. Don't you know I wrote that person on eBay? I said, listen, I'm the author of that book. Don't sell it. He's put it in an auction because I never saved any of my books. So I just got it again for $45, my own book. Anyway, I made those three books uh, with Bruno Gamunder. Uh, Bruno Gamunder stopped distributing and uh, releasing books. So right now, I am getting a deal with a company in Los Angeles. And who helped me get the deal was a very close friend of mine, Rob Blasco, who plays with Ozzy Osbourne. I mean, that is so out of the blue. But he told his friend at the publishing company, 
you got to speak to Michael Alago. I sent the guy my Polaroids. Some are, you know, X-rated and some are really just tight portraits of men's faces because these guys were all characters, whether they lived on the street, in their car, they were out of prison. I mean, they all, they had a look. So hopefully by the time next summer comes along, I will have a book of my Polaroids, which is the book that I've been dying to make my whole photography life. It's clear in the film that you made a commitment to photographing what you liked, which was a lot of interesting looking, perhaps dangerous or intimidating gay men. I loved how one of the people in the film breaks down how you like to shoot them, quote, with closed eyes. Can you expand on that? Because I found that spot on. You know, I wasn't photographing models from agencies because I never wanted my work to look uh, a word that I brought up a couple of times in this interview, homogenized. Homogenized doesn't interest me, but I was interested in big, hunky dudes who had scars and tattoos, and I had no fear of, and so I would walk up to guys and ask them if I could photograph them, and mostly all of the time they said yes. Now, they all had a look. I thought a lot of them, you know, most of them were very handsome. The same way I didn't sign an artist that I didn't have love and respect for. I wouldn't photograph a man that I didn't think was like, had the most interesting character. But also I wanted people, the audience to feel that these men were approachable. Whether I used this picture or not in all of the imagery in a book, but I had the guys close their eyes. And what that did for the picture was it made it very, dreamy. It made it so that people felt that they can walk up to this guy and perhaps touch him and relate to him. And he was uh, somebody you could just, like I said, walk up to and, and perhaps have a conversation with. That's what the closing of the eyes meant to me. I love, I love your photography. I think it's really beautiful. Thank you. There was rough God and then Brutal Truth, which is my best book, Brutal Truth. And then the last one is um, Beautiful Imperfections. And I did that whole Beautiful Imperfections book with the iPhone. Amazing. I used an application called Hipstamatic, and I find all this faux film, and, I, and everything's in a square. I love a square. So Beautiful Imperfections is a 10 by 10 inch square of all images I shot with the iPhone Hipstamatic application. That's cool. I love that app too. Yeah. So the movie came out in 2017 and then your memoir followed. And the movie got re-released in March of 2022. And then you have this book hopefully coming out next year. What else is going on? Is there anything else that we should mention? I mean. Well, isn't that all enough already? Aren't you tired of me already? I'm a person from a very young age who's always liked to be busy. I always want to be doing something. I sit on the floor in my living room and just edit these Polaroids. Yes, no, maybe. So it's exciting, but editing is not fun. Uh, I don't think so, but it has to be done. I have to pick out around 250 pictures. I'll present them in the next few weeks to the publisher and hopefully we'll just keep moving along. Can't wait for it. Me too. <laughs> I mean, I love my books, but I think this really is gonna be, for some reason, the one closest to my heart. I love Polaroids because they're instant. And I still, at 63 years old, I have no patience. I love the idea of instant film. You know, these Polaroids, because I kept them beautifully in, in sealed cases under plastic, they look like they were shot yesterday. And most of them are from the late 80s and early 90s. Well, thank you for your patience, Michael, and for answering questions you've undoubtedly been asked before. You are a great storyteller. Oh, thank you so much. Michael Alago is the star of the documentary film, Who the Fuck is That Guy? The Fabulous Story of Michael Alago, which is out now on all of your favorite streaming services. His memoir, I Am Michael Alago, Breathing Music, Signing Metallica, Beating Death, is also available, and you can go get it at allmusicbooks.com. Thank you again, Michael, and best of luck with your new photography book. Please let us know when it's out, and we will help get the word out. Oh, it's my pleasure to see both of you here. And thank you for asking me all those good questions. <laughs> all Music Movies is part of the All Music Podcast series and a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.